0: working class can very much, in fact, relate to Palestinians and what Palestinians are, are going through. But the problem is that you know there, there is leadership in the labor movement and there are gatekeepers in the labor movement that prevent those conversations from even coming into those spaces. And that's what we really need to resist, not just around Palestine, but also in all the ways um, that union dues or our tax money is used to oppress anyone.
1: Welcome to the Harmony of Interest series, where we explore ideas that shape our world. My name is Evan Papp and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which focuses on content on labor, political economy, art, and culture. And we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We are recording this on Friday, May 21st, 2021. And today I'm speaking with Labor for Palestine organizers, Suzanne Adley and Michael Letwin. Suzanne is the co-director for the Food Chain Workers Alliance and president elect of the National Lawyers Guild. Michael is a public defender in New York City and former president of the Association of Legal Aid Attorneys, UAW 2325. Suzanne and Michael, thanks so much for your time.
2: Thank you. Thank for having us.
1: So to set up the framing of this conversation, earlier this week, Palestinians pulled off a general strike. Heretz reported that the Israel Builders Association said 65,000 Palestinian construction workers observed the strike, with only 150 coming to work in Israel has caused a $40 million loss for employers. Unfortunately, many of those who observed the strike were reportedly fired. So before we talk about your organization and the recent violence, could you talk about work conditions for Palestinians?
0: Sure. Um, I, I just wanna start by saying that you know ye- yesterday's general strike was important and, and, and another historic one. And, and I think that it really kind of succeeded in, in galvanizing Um, solidarity and support from around the world. And, um, you know, uh, strikes, general strikes that uh, workers engage in, as well as consumers and students have have always uh, been a strategy of the Palestinian struggle, and and I think have always been um, a tactic of colonized people. Um, as as a way to uh, challenge the power of uh, those who are colonizing them. Um, And, you know, we have been reminded this past week of of the 1936 general strike that took place uh, in Palestine against the growing sort of Zionist, European settler colonial movement at the time, which lasted for about seven months and was was one of the largest in history Um, and Uh, Likewise, strikes have always been a very kind of important component of Palestinian resistance, including in the 1980s Intifada and the second Intifada that we we saw um, kind of emerge around 2000, 2001. Um, And, you know, these strikes are meant to uh, really uh, challenge uh, Israeli uh, violence against Palestinians in the form of occupation and humiliation and Um, and all the things that we're going to talk about, but they also use to sort of highlight, uh, you know, the specific uh, kind of experience and circumstances of Palestinian workers. I mean, as you said, it was estimated that about 65,000 construction workers who are Palestinian and who the Israeli economy depends on did not show up for work. Um, They make up the the majority of the the construction economy um, within, you know, throughout both the uh, kind of occupied territories of, of, of the West Bank, where um, there has been, you know, a lot of construction of illegal Israeli settlements, but also in 1948 Palestine, which is now Israel proper. Um, and that's not the only um, you know, uh, part of the economy in which is the kind of Israeli colonial regime depends on low wage Palestinian labor. Um, but, and so you know, in addition to sort of uh, ha- like being um, a worker in that kind of very precarious condition, the precariousness kind of created by the political economy, but just by the sort of the power structure of being an occupied person and your employer kind of being the one that is occupying you, or being a colonized person and being, and the, your employer being the one who is who is colonizing you violently, right? Um, And you know, there are also um, other sort of circumstances of of this of the occupation that Palestinian workers have to face on a day-to-day basis, which is um, the inability even to get to work um, and, and be paid because of checkpoints, right? Where they're subjected to humiliation and violence on a daily basis. Are also, you know, Palestinian workers from very many different sectors were subjected to the violence of the Israeli military occupying forces as well as to the violence of armed uh, settlers, right? I mean, there, there have been cases of, of bus drivers who've, who've kind of been killed on, on, on route to work. Uh, there are cases of many workers kind of being brutalized also as they're working um, as well as en route to work. And those are, those are some of the additional kind of daily conditions that Palestinian workers have to face, in addition to uh, just economic exploitation that comes with their precariousness.
2: And if I could add, you know, the strike, the general strike on the 18th of this, of earlier this week, were involved even by mainstream reports, uh, even in the New York Times, reporting that there were hundreds of thousands of Palestinians involved in that general strike. And what was striking about it, I think, and so empowering is that it spanned all of historic Palestine. I mean, the Israeli state uh, and the Zionist project that underlies it is organized to separate and divide and fragment and ethnic cleanse. The Palestinian people, and including the Palestinian working class, so that you've got Gaza, which is under bombardment, and then you've got the West Bank, which is under also under military occupation, and then you've got the 1948 territories, we, you know, which Israel calls Israel, but we don't call it that. We regard it as part of historic Palestine. So uh, all of these different, in all of these different places, and especially the West Bank and and uh, in the 48 within the Green Line. This is where this strike took place and it, it broke through those kinds of divisions that the Israeli system, the Israeli apartheid system, creates to keep people separate and both from each other and from um, from, from, the, you know, the, from everybody else. And that was tremendously empowering. I don't know, Suzanne, whether there's been a a general strike of this scale, certainly since the intifadas of of 20 and 30 years ago, but perhaps even back to 1936. So there's a tremendous feeling, I think, of empowerment and hope that that brings, because it is one aspect of resistance that involves masses of people. I mean, there are many forms of resistance. There are protests. There are children throwing stones at, at Israeli tanks. But it's all David versus Goliath including this strike and it shows the, the, the power that people have to resist.
1: And so much of labor is, is focused on solidarity and there's a question of there's a labor, there's a, a very large um, almost state-sponsored labor union and I, I would like you to talk a little bit about it um, within the Israeli government and Israeli workers as well. Um, and could you discuss what is labor for Palestine and What are some of the major themes of the solidarity struggle that you're supporting?
2: Well, Labor for Palestine was actually launched in 2004 uh, to reclaim a legacy, really, of working class solidarity with Palestine that unfortunately has kind of been lost because overwhelmingly labor officials in this country support Israel and, in fact, have given lots of money uh, to Israel and campaign for Israel within the government here and make sure that this government sends the $3.8 billion a year in military aid to Israel to carry out the kinds of massacres that we now see and have seen from the last 73 years. So Labor for Palestine especially endorses the 2005 Palestinian-led boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. It's really a, a picket line, also known as BDS. And BDS demands an end to occupation and apartheid, full equality for all, and the Palestinian refugees' right to return to the homes and lands from which they were expelled, especially since 1948, when 750,000 Palestinians were made refugees by the creation of the Israeli state. And this really also reflects a much broader kind of labor solidarity for Palestine that exists around the world, where from South Africa to India to, Italy now, with dock workers refusing to send uh, military cargo to Israel, we've seen um, a growth in that kind of solidarity. And that really reflects a couple of things. I mean, one thing it reflects is the historical parallel of the divestment movement against apartheid South Africa in the, you know, 20, 30, and 40 years ago, and even longer, which played a really important role in helping to top, to isolate and topple the apartheid regime in South Africa and labor around the world and certainly in this country was part of that in a big way. And unfortunately, that has not been mirrored in the kind of solidarity in this country, at least, that is required for Palestine. So our position and and what we're urging is that just as an injury to one is an injury to all in regard to any legitimate labor struggle. So that's true with Palestine, especially as Palestine is under intense attack. And has been for so many years. And the BDS movement actually has had tremendous success in, uh, around, in a variety of different contexts. And, and I think the fact, for example, that uh, last week, uh, Italian dock workers refused to send those weapons to Israel really shows the kind of power that workers in particular have. BDS takes many forms. A lot of it is consumer boycott, and that's important. A lot of it is demands on the government to do this and that, or on companies. Uh, or on trade unions but what's so important about the power that workers have at the workplace is that it goes beyond resolutions it goes beyond talk it's to exercise the direct power that workers have and in this country there are a couple of important pre- uh examples of that in the past going all the way back to strikes by arab and black workers in detroit in 1973 in the auto plants against uaw support for israel but more recently In both 2010 and 2014 uh dock workers on the west coast in this country members of the ilwu refused to handle israeli cargo and turned away israeli ships in observance of bds and that just shows that if workers if we exercise that power that we have at the workplace we can actually play a direct role in bringing down the israeli apartheid system
1: and could you just comment a little bit about labor Zionism and what the trade union federation, known as the Histodruth, uh if I'm pronouncing it correctly, what that is and how that is not helpful to the cause of what you're trying to do as well.
2: Well, the um, labor Zionism is uh, the support that labor, some labor bodies have given to Zionism going all the way back to uh, more than a century ago, especially with the 1917 Balfour Declaration. And then the subsequent, which, which in which the imperialist powers purported to give Jews a national homeland in, in, in somebody else's country, in Palestine. And also the rise of the history that you mentioned uh, starting in 1920. And so labor Zionism internationally uh, really was at the forefront of creating the, well, of the Zionist, what we call the Zionist settler colonial project, which sort of parallels in many ways what happened in apartheid South Africa. And in some ways and what happened in this country with the dispossession of the native people and also uh, slavery. But um, in the context of Palestine, it was people that, that called themselves socialists and that called themselves labor that actually were at the forefront of that settler colonial movement. And ironically, they never had any real support among w- the working class, either in this country or internationally. But they used those terms to kind of legitimize and whitewash, if you will, the uh, Zionism to begin with, and then eventually the establishment of the State of Israel. And the Histadrut, in particular, the so-called Zionist Labor Federation, was at the absolute forefront of that project and using that kind of image of being a labor organization and even calling itself socialist was able to recruit various kinds of labor leaders around the world including in this country to support zionism and that has been the status quo ever since so for the last century and more labor leaders in this country especially starting in the 1940s but going all the way back to those earlier years uh, advocated for the establishment of a zionist state and made sure, and has made sure ever since then, that that Zionist state had the support of the various imperialist powers, but also the support of uh, major labor institutions, certainly in this country, and so. We have union leaderships who, without consulting the members, their own members have bought millions and hundreds of millions of dollars of Israel bonds. They support every war on Palestine that occurs. They support the displacement of Palestinians. They support the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, although they don't call it that. And above all, they make sure, and they try to make sure at least, that there will be no support or to suppress support for BDS within labor. So for example, when uh, labor bodies have begun to, a few labor bodies have begun to support BDS in recent years. They've done everything they can to isolate and silence those those attempts to show solidarity for Palestine. And that's essentially what labor uh, Zionist labor or labor Zionism is. And the history of in particular is really a federation of Jewish workers. And it's it's very similar in that way to the white trade union federations in apartheid South Africa, which talked about being a labor organization and talked about, uh, perhaps about other so-called progressive things, but in reality was a way of, of suppressing uh, the indigenous people, yeah, both in apartheid South Africa and in, in Palestine.
1: So in an article titled, U.S. Labor Must Stand with Palestine, published on May 15th, the anniversary of the Nakba, labor for Palestine wrote that this is not an Arab-Israeli conflict. It's not an Israel-Hamas war, communal clashes, or a civil war. So could you just talk a little bit about why it's misleading to frame the violence as between these two conflicting parties?
0: Sure, I I can talk about that a little bit. Um, You know, we've been uh, struggling for a long time and particularly within the United States as to the the way that um, the the media um, and sort of other kind of institutions um, have uh, framed, uh, you know, the Palestinian um, issue and uh, in ways that, um, you know, on a spectrum from like complete and and total uh, pro-Israeli propaganda to kind of more uh, liberal minded um, tropes of like, well, we have to respect everyone's human rights in, in this conflict. Right. Um, and, you know, in, in my opinion, like neither of that is helpful. Um, we have to say what this is and, and and what this is, is an anti-colonial struggle. Right. Um, Michael talked about, you know, the Balfour Declaration. And, and around that time, you know, we started to sort of um, you know, in in the turn of the nineteenth um, century, you started to see an expansion of uh, settlements in in Palestine by uh, European um, settlers who identified as Jewish and and who were either part of or sort of being prompted by this new Zionist movement, right? And in Zionism, you know, essentially. Um, was a was a, a, a colonizers movement a colonizers movement that said that as as white European Jews, right, uh, that have both a religious connection um, to the ancient world and oh, but also have superiority as 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 white Europeans. Um, have the right to go and colonize uh, the land um, of Palestine, you know, without regard to indigenous people, right? And that movement of Zionism grew, um, and you know, uh, became supported by imperialist powers, and and um, and in 1948, uh, we see the establishment of what would become sort of the Israeli regime, right? And that is is a moment that uh, we refer to as the Nakba, which in Arabic means catastrophe, right? And uh, May 15th, uh, which was uh, just this past Saturday, marked 73 years uh, since the establishment of the Israeli regime. Um, You know, the Zionist colonizing project didn't begin 73 years ago, but 73 years ago, was when we saw the establishment of Israel um, and a moment in in which um, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were expelled by force um, from their villages, uh, a moment where we saw uh, the direct sort of destruction of over 500 Palestinian villages or takeover uh, by uh, Zionist settlers. Um, And when we saw several sort of examples of uh, massacres uh, by uh, sort of the Zionist army at the time. Um, and so, you know, that was an important moment that, um, but it, it, it itself wasn't actually a moment And the Nakba, which uh, was, is this sort of a moment um, where we marked the establishment of Israel was part of a colonizing project uh, that has big, has continued for over a century. You know, So since 1948, then you know, we, we now um, have sort of the occupation of the, the West Bank and, and, and um, Gaza, and we have this sort of devastating economic um, embargo on, on Gaza as well. Um, we've seen sort of the expansion of uh, illegal settlements you know, throughout the West Bank. Um, we've seen the, you know, the construction of the apartheid wall, uh, and when we've seen sort of various moments of attempts by um, uh, by um, Zionists, both the settlers and the army that protects them, uh, to continue to expel Palestinians, as we saw in Jerusalem and Sheikh Jarrah, that and in the week that kind of like led up to this particular moment of violence. And we also, you know, have been experiencing um, every few years the you know periodic and devastating bombing. Of Gaza, people who basically are kind of living in an open air prison. So, you know, all of this, like you know, you know, going back to the turn of the century, this has been a, a situation where Palestinian people, the indigenous people of Palestine, are suffering settler colonial violence in all these different sort of manifestations, right? And Palestinians, whether they're engaging in a general strike, whether they're calling for BDS. Or whether or not they're protecting their families with arms, right? This is this is this is Palestinians. This is indigenous people. These are people who are resisting, who are resisting, and um, the colonizing power that is really seeking to annihilate them, right? It's not, um, and and there, there's no comparison between kind of the military, economic, and political support that Israel has, particularly by, uh, you know. The U.S. Empire and and other sort of uh, allies of the United States, and you know, and what the Palestinians have, what the do, what the Palestinians do have, is um um kind of a, a resilience in which they you know will continue to resist colonization. So it's you know to call it a conflict um, is is really kind of not just inaccurate, but it's it's just kind of it's really absurd, right? And and I think. That you know what we see is is that you know and whether we're talking about the right wing or sort of like liberal uh, sort of elements, you know, we we see the the continuing sort of tropes that are being used. But what about Hamas, right? That has nothing that like Hamas's existence existence or non-existence doesn't change, right? Doesn't change that Israel is a colonized, a violent colonizing power, right? And Hamas is an elected sort of leadership in Gaza, who for most people whether or not they agree with Hamas's religious ideology, you know, believe is um kind of fighting for for all Palestinians, right? Um, to call it communal clashes, to say that this is about religion, or to say that this is something that is centuries old, you know, between Arabs and Jews, is is just not accurate and it's just, you know, absurd. Um, I, I think too, but like at the same time, you know, as somebody who's kind of been organizing around Palestine, we have seen. Uh, like a market improvement in the way uh, that uh, the media and institutions and and people on social media are talking about Palestine. So, um, and, you know, we've also seen, you know, recent reports by organizations like Human Rights Watch who have finally, finally acknowledged that a system of apartheid is existing, you know, um, in, in these territories. And we've also finally, finally seen uh, the international Criminal Court call for an investigation of Israeli war crimes, right? Um, but you know it, it's going it's still going to take more than that. like we need to, you know mobilize labor as well as you know, the grassroots to stand in support of Palestine not just when they're victims but also stand in support of Palestinians as they are uh, working, you know uh, resisting to liberate themselves from, colonizing power.
1: So I do want to talk about some of the demands and what peace looks like and and a very solution-oriented discussion, Uh, but I do also want to kind of, uh, you've you've laid the groundwork where previously it was the Ottoman Empire, World War I happens, Sykes-Picot Treaty happens with Britain and France taking over much of this area, the British get through the Balfour Declaration, Prime Minister Balfour then pretty much says the Palestinian mandate is is going to eventually be open to these European settlers, World War II, and then it goes right into what, what you were explaining as well. But just for those who may not have been following the recent conflict, uh, ceasefire was announced yesterday, May 20th. And could you talk a little bit about just what was the the actual spark that, that led to the most recent violence? I don't know. Yeah.
0: Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, I think most recently, um, what we had seen uh, was attempts by Israeli settlers to um, Violently evict uh, Palestinian residents of Jerusalem from their homes in in the neighborhoods of, of Sheikh Jarrah and Salwan, right? Um, those evictions had been happening actually for quite a long time. And, and you know, when I say evictions, right, what I'm really talking about are settlers, many of them who are U.S. citizens or perhaps you know citizens of of Europe uh, or even South Africa, who go to Jerusalem. And then enter the, you know, either you know with their families or, or alone, enter the homes of Palestinians and say we're taking over your your homes and you need to leave, right? And if Palestinians refuse, right, then they're met with violence, either by the settlers themselves or you know by the, the Israeli army that has recently intervened in support of uh, these uh, settler uh, evictions, right? And you know. The Palestinians in these neighborhoods had been facing this kind of pressure from settlers for quite some time, but, mo- but most recently, you know, it, the Israeli court kind of approved uh, like approved these convic- these uh, evictions, and the Israeli army became more mobilized in, in like sup- in supporting um, the uh, attempted expulsions of, of these Palestinians from their homes in those neighborhoods, right? Um, because that's what the Israeli courts are there to facilitate the colonizing project, not to bestow any kind of justice in what's going on in places like Jerusalem. Um, and so, you know, that kind of had come to a head in, 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 in particularly where uh, a lot of, of uh, Palestinians in other areas of Palestine uh, were seeing what was going on. A lot of people around the world were seeing what was going on. Um, at the same time, too, you know, during the holy month of Ramadan, um, that's when a lot of uh, Palestinian Muslims, um, and you know, this week before also was Holy Easter. That's when a lot of Palestinian Christians and Muslims um, will uh, come to Jerusalem or, or attempt to come to Jerusalem to pray. right? And one of the places where folks pray the Holy Sepulchre Church, which was met with violence a week before, and then the Aqsa Mosque, and uh, which was met with extreme violence at, at that time by, by the Israeli military. Right, and that caused sort of a, a, a wave of Palestinians in the West Bank and then in the 48 territories um, to then um, be, be come out in, and rally and, and try to reach Jerusalem and, and resist what the Israeli army was trying was trying to do to attack worshippers and to prevent people from uh, from going to Jerusalem and you know to try to prevent it, the and the Palestinians are also trying to prevent the Israeli army from, you know, continuing these evictions, um, and then that also, um, you know, uh, resulted in sort of Palestinians also outside of Palestine also sort of like organizing um, in a show of, of resistance to what Israel had been had been doing in Sheikh Dada and Aqsa Mosque, including in Jordan and in Lebanon, and as you see here in in the United States, um, and but. You know, <clears throat> those are the recent events. But what we know also, right, and including the bombing of uh, over 300 uh, people in Palestine, killing like several, uh, you know, children and, and women, um, which is not a new occurrence, right? As I was saying before, but you know, those are certainly recent events. But the fact of the matter is, is, is that you know, it's been over a century of colonial violence. Uh, that is the backdrop in the context in in, in which the recent moment of uh, Israeli attacks and the recent moment moment of resistance exists.
1: Something I like to bring up as a very kind of removed outside observer is that the Netanyahu government has has been one of the, the worst governments I've seen in the world for the human rights violations that have been going on. And he's obviously failed to form a government uh, four times in the last two years. He's under indictment. And from my understanding, there was a coalition party with um, some, a coalition uh, movement to get him out days before a lot of the violence and evictions really started escalating in Jerusalem. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that or um, have, have you been, do you, do you ever frame it with, with Netanyahu as trying to start a war, start this violence to, to try to stay in power?
0: Go ahead, Michael.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, clearly that's something that goes on. Uh, every time there's an Israeli election coming up, they start bombing Gaza to distract people. But it's also true that across the political spectrum in uh, 48, you know, in, in, in the 48 territories, meaning within the Israeli state, all the political parties, all the Jewish political parties, support Zionism. They all support the wars on Gaza. They they may not necessarily support every eviction that takes place, but if they don't, it's only because they want to maintain the fiction that Israel is a democracy and somehow not what it in fact is, which is an apartheid state. As Suzanne mentioned now even acknowledged by Human Rights Watch and B'Tselem, the Israeli human rights organization. So uh, it's only to maintain the apartheid regime that you get a little bit of dissent around the edges from some of the more liberal Zionists. But even they, when it comes push comes to shove, whether in over there or over here, nonetheless support the wars. They support U.S. weapons going to be used for that purpose, and. Um, so it appeals, yes, it's a, it's a distraction that Netanyahu uses, but he also appeals to a pre-existing and ongoing support for apar- Israeli apartheid and ethnic cleansing. And so it's not really a question, therefore, of just Netanyahu, any more than it was a question of just being Trump in this country. I mean, of course, we're glad to get rid of Trump in this country. But the fact is, is that Biden now is sending weapons just as much as Trump did and just as much as Obama did, and just as much as every other administration did to kill Palestinian children in, in, of whom more than 50 have been killed. This, just this round, 50 children, more than 50 children killed in Gaza by US weapons provided by a liberal democratic administration. So it's not ultimately about which particular politician or even which particular party is in power, either there or here. It's about a system of, of, of racism and apartheid and settler colonialism that exists on an international level. And that also is why I think you've got growing recognition, not only in general and around the world, but certainly in this country, a lot of the support for Palestine comes from people in the Black Lives and Black Liberation Movement and other movements of oppressed people in this country, indigenous people, because Palestine has always stood with those movements vocally and make clear the connections. And there's a a chant that you'll hear at the demonstrations that from Palestine to Mexico, all the walls have got to go, referring to the apartheid wall in in Palestine that separates Palestinians from each other and from uh, their own country. And the border wall in this country, which again, under both administrations, Democratic and Republican, have been used to keep out indigenous people who are simply migrating to, to live and from countries from, or from lands that they themselves have been expelled from, as is the case for, uh, say, Mexicans, you know, Mexican migrants here. So these are connections. And if you look at the streets of you know, Ferguson in 2014 or Baltimore or or, or, Minnesota, or Minneapolis today with George Floyd, which you, it, it, to many people, the, the parallels are not hard to see between that and what we see on the streets of Palestine, the use of extreme militarized and military force against popular resistance to racism and injustice. And therefore, you see leaders of the Black Lives, or many leaders of the Black Lives movement, whether it be Angela Davis, who's spoken about Palestine all her life, going back to the 1960s, to Mark Lamont Hill, to uh, the Black for Palestine groups, to the Dream Defenders, all expressing support for Palestine. And that has come to a new level. As, As Suzanne said earlier, it's a new moment right now. I mean, it's a new movement in in Palestine, of course, there's always been resistance there going back to the very beginning and there always will be, just as there will be to any unjust regime around the world. But in Palestine, there is this sense, I think, of this is the moment, that that the level of of brutality is exposed, that the level of resistance has grown and expanded and, and really given people hope that there's the possibility to bring down this unjust regime. And so in this country, We've seen the beginning of, for the first time ever, partial though it is, uh, AOC, for example, has a bill to not allow $750 million in current military aid to go to Israel at the, while they're bombing Gaza with, the, with that very military aid. Now, that's, it should be to eliminate all US military aid to Israel and to end all ties with that regime. However, the fact that even such a partial bill has come forward is, is really unprecedented. The fact that, that, that in the Democratic Party, you know, the, the popular opinion in the Democratic Party among the, about people that vote Democratic is overwhelmingly not for Israel. And the polls that have come out in recent months and years, but especially right at this very moment, including among Jews, especially young Jews who no longer buy into support for Zionist settler colonialism. And and the Israeli regime is very concerned about that. They're, They're desperately concerned about the rise of BDS. They're desperately concerned about the breaking through of their kind of propaganda, even into some of the mainstream press, as Suzanne mentioned, and especially the alliances that are formed between racial and social justice movements in this country, like Black Lives, with Palestinians. These things frighten them to death, which is why they respond with trying to outlaw BDS in this country. They respond by uh, witch hunting people like Angela Davis and Mark Lamont Hill and others who stand up for Palestine. And, you know, for a long time, that's worked. I mean, at least it's worked in the sense of not silencing those particular people who will never be silenced. But by setting an example of that, you should be scared if you speak out about Palestine, you're going to be called anti-Semitic and so forth. That no longer is having the same effect. I mean, there, it does scare certain people, and, and it is um, you know, a major deterrent to people speaking up. But increasingly, that's being broken and broken through. And that gives us reason for hope. Resistance in Palestine, with resistance in this country, and around the world gives us hope, despite the terrible violence. And, and you know, all we can hope is that these, uh, the massacres of these children and other people in Gaza you know, is not in vain.
1: So I I wanna talk about the demands of labor for Palestine and how people can support your organization. But before talking about that, I do wanna kind of create, what is the vision of peace? What what does peace look like? Because it's very easy to get pessimistic and and cynical if you're someone who believes in the United Nations uh, change of, uh, of actually saying that here's Gaza and West Bank Here's where the Israelis are going to go. And then you see how those little green spots of Palestine have been shrunken and shrunken again and again. And you see Jerusalem, that was this idea of having a United Nations controlled city that was going to be used by Muslims, Christians and Jews. It's, It's now completely controlled by one of the religions and a very I, I think I, some of the things that I've read is is that the goal of, of Zionism is to ultimately push out all of the Palestinians into Jordan, into Egypt, and and seize all the land as the old kingdom of Israel. And I'm I'm just wondering like how do we step back from this current dynamic that's going and and what does peace look like? And and what does a, a government look like that that is just and and allows the Palestinians the the agency and and dignity that that every human deserves.
0: Well, I think that um, what is what has been uh, a vision right uh, for the future uh, that has existed really for a long time uh, among the Palestinian movement is is this idea of a of, of one state uh, solution, um, similar to, um, you know, what we've seen um, take shape in South Africa, even though we know that that's sort of far from perfect uh, with the sort of the continuation of economic apartheid among other things, right? Um, and you know, it is really kind of, of uh, a luxury to, to be able to kind of like spend time on, on sort of thinking about that vision, right? Because there's so much uh, that uh, Palestinians have to contend with. But I, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the liberal forces and the right-wing forces have really kind of like tried to um, push this idea that the, that the only solution is is a two-state solution right um and that um and um is impossible right I mean in you sort of referring to the little kind of like green marks on the map now uh, where Palestinians are confined to it very much in in kind of like Bantu stands were in, in South Africa right um and it's also impossible because it also kind of still uh, maintains um, kind of this uh, powerful uh, Israeli regime and uh, subjugated uh, people who then have to kind of like live within those confines. And I I think that that idea was also um, kind of the impetus for pushing the Oslo Accords back in, in, in 1993, was it, right? And all that did was really helped to sort of solidify and ferment the occupation um, and increase it, you know, um, and <clears throat> and actually cause more uh, exploitation and and subjugation of Palestinian people. Um, so, you know, I, I think. As I said, like this, the vision of the one-state solution is actually one that has ex- existed for a very, very long time um, among uh, sort of uh, Palestinian-resistant movement. And I think it's one uh, that's also um, kind of been recognized uh, as uh, the path forward, uh, not just for the Palestinian movement, but for um, allies and, and solidarity activists and Palestinians living in, in diaspora. Uh, Now, to talk about exactly what that looks like, I mean, it it, it has to include uh, the sort of the decolonization of Palestine in all of its manifestations. Palestinian refugees, uh, which there are up to 5 million now, who many of these refugee camps were created in 1954 and in 1967, they have the right under international law to return to their homes. That has to be part of that vision, right? Um, And also... Uh, what needs to be part of that vision is you know we you know to, to have we can't have attempt to have a one state when we still have an armed police force representing um kind of a power elite you know over um you know the indigenous population that that like we're seeing in South Africa so there's a lot to discuss about that right um and you know as michael said, there's a lot of hope right now. It is an important moment. I think one of the places, though, that like it is a challenge is that the is that the truth is is that there's there's very little resistance to Israeli settler colonialism within Israeli society itself, right? Um, I mean, there might there are liberal elements that are saying Palestinian have human rights, but there, there's just not enough. Um, uh, well, honestly, there's a great there's a great deal of mainstream Pal- like uh, Israeli society that is openly supporting ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, you should you should see these interviews that Abby Martin did on the streets of Israel, uh, but even those who are, you know, challenging Israeli violence against Palestinians just don't go far enough, they, they still don't want to chat like they still don't want to challenge uh, the very sort of power structure that is the Israeli regime, and they—they're going to have to go farther than that, uh, if we're going to be able to talk about um, kind of the future and a vision of a one-state solution. And Michael, you might have something to add to this. Yeah,
2: just, just to follow up, um, like Suzanne said it all. But uh, you know, the bottom line is that all of of Israel, so-called, is occupied Palestine. And the idea that you can have an occupation regime continuing to exist is simply not acceptable. Not, it wasn't acceptable in South Africa. It, it's, it wasn't acceptable in uh, Zimbabwe, and it's not acceptable in Palestine. And the interesting thing about one state as well is that um, one state meaning that everybody would have equal rights. One democratic state, one democratic secular state Throughout historic Palestine, with equal rights for all, uh, from the river to the sea, is the phrase that that is used to meaning dec- decolonization. And decolonization, it should be clear, is not about um, getting rid of people. It means equal rights for everyone. The Palestinian movement has made that very clear. And uh, it also means, uh, you know, one person, one vote, and, and democratic process, uh, minority rights, and so forth. But it but it means an end to uh, to to the Israeli regime, because the, the, the regime may be Israel temporarily, but, the, but the, the country is Palestine. And it always will be Palestine. And that's what you know, we're fighting for, ultimately. Most immediately, we're fighting you know, with what the, the BDS movement is calling for, and, and it's reflected in this ultimate goal. But the BDS movement doesn't, doesn't specifically address the, number, the question of how many states. What the BDS movement says is that uh, it demands an end to the 1967 occupation. That means the land that was stolen by Israel in 1967, the West Bank and Gaza, in particular, in Jerusalem. Uh, But also an end to Israeli occupation and colonization of all Arab lands, and full equality for Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel, and implementation of the Palestinian refugees' right to return, as Suzanne has, has said. What's interesting, again, is that not only is there growing support for BDS, but there is growing support, or at least a hearing, for the idea of one democratic state. I mean, the reality is there's one. There's already one state. It's just that it's an Israeli settler colonial regime state that dominates the 48 areas and the 67 areas and continues to maintain the forced exile of up to 7 million Palestinian refugees. The only question then is what kind of state is it going to be? And so we're saying rather than being the current apartheid ethnic cleansing regime, it should be a democratic, secular one state for all. And, and, you, and you begin to see reference to that and even advocacy of that occasionally in the op-ed pages of the New York Times for the first time ever. Now, overwhelmingly, what's in the New York Times, certainly in the reporting side, is still the traditional Israeli Zionist narrative. But the fact that, you know, when resistance exists, as it does uh, in, in Palestine, and when it grows as it is in Palestine to the levels that it is at right now, Or for that matter, when the Black Lives Movement in this country was able to, over the last year, become such a major force, such, you know, so many millions of people coming out, the largest number of protests actually in US history, millions and millions of people on the streets. That doesn't necessarily change the systems itself, but it does, excuse me, begin to break down the dominant narrative. And that's what we're seeing in regard to Palestine now we're seeing people talking about one state in the mainstream. Not as much as it needs to be, and certainly still in the very small majority, but it's, it's begun to be heard. The fact that uh, there is begun to be opposition expressed to why is the United States arming the bombardment of Gaza and the maintenance of the Israeli apartheid state. These things all of a sudden are being heard at least because of the resistance that's going on on the ground in Palestine and the resonance that that has in this country and around the world. And that's, that is reason for hope.
1: So Labor for Palestine, how can organized labor workers around the world support the mission of Labor for Palestine? What What are some of the key demands that you think can move this forward?
2: Well, most of the simple answer is that you could, we would welcome you to endorse our statement, which is posted at laborforpalestine.net or contact us at info at uh, But more generally, you know, we are calling for support for BDS. We're calling for labor organizations to, uh, to formally endorse, to cut off ties with the Histadrut, the racist Israeli Labor Federation and its supporters here in the Jewish Labor Committee. It's the same thing. And, and again, to, to emphasize that, you know, Jewish does not equal Zionist. Um, there are many Jews, including myself, who are anti-Zionist. Zionism is not an expression of Jewish identity. It is an expression, unfortunately, of people who believe in Jewish and white supremacy, but there's a growing number of Jews who, and there's there's always been anti-Zionist Jews and there continues to be, if anything, more and more as time goes on. Um, So, but we do believe that that, that labor has to get on the right side. Labor has to be on the right side, whether it comes to black lives and standing rock in this country, indigenous struggles, it has to be on the right side in Palestine. It's the same kind of issues. These are the same racial uh, and, and, and worker justice issues. And labor cannot thrive. I mean, labor is under tremendous attack in this country and only represents now 6% of the private sector working class. And you know, so labor has to be reinvigorated. It has to be re-democratized. And it has to be re-energized and re-empowered. And it can only do that by being part of these intersectional Mass movements for justice. In fact, if anything, that is going to be the, the 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 critical thing. That la- the the the, the it, without doing that, labor is not going to go anywhere in this country. It has to be alive and, and part of the Black Lives movement. It has to be part of the Indigenous rights movement. It has to be part of the migrant workers' rights movement. And it has to be part of the worker solidarity with Palestine movement. Until it has that kind of moral credibility and understands the need for solidarity across all of those kinds of different things, it's not gonna go anywhere. And we're gonna be in continual decline. So it's it's a survival thing for all of us to be in solidarity with each other because none of us can get free on our own. None of us can be free until we're all free.
1: And Suzanne, any closing thoughts?
0: No, I mean, I just, want to kind of reemphasize what Michael said that I, I think that, um, you know, examples that we've seen, we we have seen some uh, examples in, in the past decade of uh, union locals and, and workers coming together uh, to push their leadership um, to support the demands of, of BDS. And, and, you know, they have been met with a lot of opposition, but but they've been consistent, so so that's very helpful. But I think you know the opposition that they're that they've experienced from their leadership is certainly kind of representing a crisis of, of union democracy, right? And I think that that's a very important point. Um, we and you know the, one of the locals, I, I believe it was in 2014 or, or 2016 that did pass a resolution like amongst their base was actually a lot of healthcare workers, right? People kind of expect this kind of thing from like academics and whatnot. And, you know, those experiences, and I work with a lot of, um, you know, migrant farm worker organizations and, and, um, you know, workers in rural areas. And, you know, what I have found was that, you know, the working class can very much in fact relate to Palestinians and what Palestinians are, are going through. But the problem is that you know, there, there is leadership in the labor movement and there are gatekeepers in the labor movement that prevent those conversations from even coming into those spaces. And that's what we really need to resist, not just around Palestine, but also in all the ways um, that union dues or our tax money is used to oppress anyone.
1: Michael and Suzanne, Labor for Palestine, thanks for all your work and everything that you're doing.
2: Thanks for having us.